This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauretsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by LA Opera president and CEO Christopher Kelsch. We're going to spend some time talking about each of the productions, which comprise the 2018-19 season, both on the main stage at Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and off-grand at venues such as the Ace Hotel and the Ford Theater. We'll also talk about Kelsch's vision for the company and how he and the LA Opera team work to make opera as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. I'm joined now by the president and the CEO of the company, Los Angeles Opera's Christopher Kelsch, uh, who is just back from Salzburg and Bayreuth, traveling, hearing, seeing opera. What was that uh, experience like? Uh, what are you looking for when you're traveling around and uh, hearing opera, or are you just going as a fan? <laughs> well, uh, nice to be with you, Brian. Thank you so much for, for having me today. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an apt question because I come to the art form uh, primarily as a fan. I think it's important to not only have that passion but be able to renew it. And it's, there's something very inspiring about hearing opera in other houses and uh, the way in which it expands your mind. Now, before we came on air, I just said that, you know, the, the Bayreuth experience for me is a kind of quasi-religious kind of pilgrimage experience for me. We were there specifically because we had a group of philanthropists and supporters uh, that we were bringing to hear uh, Placido conduct performances of Valkyra and then sing uh, concert performances of, of the Pearl Fishers in Salzburg. I'm able to kill a bunch of birds with one stone um, because I'm able to uh, hear repertory, hear singers, hear conductors, see productions, uh, meet with my colleagues um, in those places. And so it actually becomes a very um, enriching experience. Now, for Bayreuth, because it's such an acoustically pristine house, I don't exactly – I can trust my ears in those experiences, but I can't trust that those ears have any relevance for casting. So there are singers that I know and have heard in other houses, and that's a wonderful experience – Singers that I hear for the first time in Bayreuth, I will make a note in order for me or another member of the artistic staff to hear them in a different context that is more analogous to the experience of singing in the Chandler because there are very few opera houses in the world that have that kind of acoustical quality. You know, Bayreuth is a very specific kind of thing. We did so much Wagner in the lead-up to the ring. We've done a little bit less. I'm not sure how instructive that is. Salzburg, on the other hand, is pretty interesting. You know, one of the, the reasons that I think that festivals are so critical within our ecosystem is that there you are not only given license and permission, but in a way it's essential that those places are starting to push the boundaries of what is possible musically, musicologically, theatrically. And certainly we saw some pretty, what I think would be considered in the United States, pretty out, outrageous interpretations of core repertory. Um, Such as? Uh, we saw a production of uh, the coronation of Popea, which even for the Salzburg Festival was uh, exceedingly controversial in terms of the volume of sex, drugs, and rock and roll um, within it. I would say personally it was incredibly gratifying. Lydia Steyer, who's a stage director who had worked with Akim Fryer here on our ring, had gotten a new production of the Magic Flute in Salzburg. And so, you know, to direct Magic Flute in Mozart's town is is a big deal, and that was... I'm really gratifying to see, and maybe you've seen some of the reviews, it was extremely well-received. And, of course, as we talked about before, Yuval Sharon was directing 
Lohengrin and Bayreuth. And because those were two young people that worked with the company on the ring, there was something kind of very, very gratifying for us about that. So it was a, it was a really wonderful trip, both personally and, and professionally. So back in town, uh, getting ready to start the 1819 uh, season. And uh, I'd like to, in just a, a few moments, we'll go through kind of each of the productions that, that we've got on stage this season and have you just tell me a little bit about each one. But before we get there, this is that was a tease, see? <laughs> um, before we get there, when someone thinks about Los Angeles opera, what do you want them to think about? What do you want um, this company's identity to be? Oh, big question. I would hope that there is, uh, no matter the repertory, and the repertory changes a lot from year to year, um, that there is a level of incredibly high uh, standards of artistry in singing, in playing, in conducting, in stage design and direction, that there's a kind of uh, through line of quality that, that runs through that, and that there is a journey that we go through every year in which um, this unique, powerful, gigantic art form is enlivened in all of its various forms. I mean, there's this kind of incredibly intellectually lazy exercise that people go through in which they question what the viability of the art form is. And I think that for me, every single year, we kind of, we confront that question, which is what what does this art form have to say about the nature of the human condition? And we're able to do that with, um, ideally, with repertory that spans over 400 years every year. Now, we're a stagione house. We're not a repertory house. We're not a um, European house. So we can never be truly encyclopedic in our approach to the art form. Um, but from my point of view, we can be emblematic of the art form at, at its greatest. And so I mean, I think about why, why do I go to the opera? I go because I'm, I'm there for catharsis. I want to go through um, a kind of wrenching experience of what, of what it means to be human and I think that that is a uh, that's an exercise that is as necessary in 2018 as it has ever been in uh, over the course of human history. So we think about opera as being a secular religion. Hope, hopefully, people come for a kind of cathartic experience of what the human uh, being is capable of, mm-hmm. for good and for ill. The very first opera I ever saw at Los Angeles Opera was Don Carlo. Oh. And it uh, opens this season. 2006 edition or? Yes. Great. Yep. I had just moved to L.A. and uh, was able to. It was Ferruccio Furulanetto, uh, Salvatore Lecitra, and um, Maestro Conlon in the pit. And it absolutely blew me away. Um, so I'm excited to hear um, this, this version. Um, so we start with Don Carlo. Yes, and you'll have two of the two of those three elements back. Yeah, in fact, it it was it was the second uh, production that uh, James conducted in in his in his tenure. He had opened uh, just the night before in a production of Traviata. So it's exciting for him to return to this repertory. Also, for me, some of the most potent uh, endeavors that we have done with our artistic leadership have been the collaborations between Placido and. James um, and Verdian repertory and the I, I mean I, I think that audiences hopefully will have noticed that we are as an institution are very interested in the sustained relationships with artists over time and I personally am particularly attracted to the richness which can be gleaned from a, a long-term endeavor and for me 
this combination of Placido James and Verdi has been um, one of the richest veins that we have plumbed in, in James's tenure. So I'm very excited to, to come back to it. Also, I think that to me, it is not only an unadulterated um, Verdian masterpiece, but it is one of the towering works of the repertory. The headline here, of course, is the is the local debut of a newish role for Placido, uh, singing the baritone role when he had been so commonly associated with with the title role. So that's extremely exciting for us, and it's also the the first revival of this um, hopefully iconic production. Uh, which we premiered uh, in 20, uh, 2006. Mm-hmm. 150 roles now. Yeah, in fact, yeah, so I was there, as I mentioned, in Salzburg for the, the debut of his 150th uh, role um, in The Pearl Fishers. It's, it's incredible. I mean, you know, th- this is one of the things that I appreciate the most about both James and Placido is that whenever they achieve something personally, artistically gratifying, they move the goalpost. <laughs> And that's a really fantastic energy to organize an opera company around because it means that that good is never good enough and that greatness is always just out of reach. And while that may seem frustrating, I think I think there is incredible pleasure in that quest. And it means that they in their artistic leadership roles, but also as personal artists, they're always pushing the company forward. So that's um, really fantastic. And we'll get there later, but we get to 151 um, later in the season with no end in sight. You know, I was able to spend some time with him um, last week and his artistic curiosity is insatiable. I don't know that we're ever going to reach the end of that. Mm-hmm. And I feel as a colleague and as a fan of, of what he's been able to do in, in the art form, I feel very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, and we'll talk about this when we get there, I guess, too. But um, just his ability to... Uh, I don't know what the right verb is, but vacuum up music and internalize it. And uh, just, it's absolutely amazing. Um, this was just announced, Le Talent Lyrique, uh, An Evening of Couperin. So that's um, super, super exciting. This is one of the premier period instrument bands, and they've been doing it for for a long, long time. Uh, they have indeed. I, you know, when I when I talked before about the fact that we, we try to be emblematic of the art form, I will cop to the fact that I have been concerned about a lack of Baroque repertory um, in the company. There's lots of reasons why we haven't had so much uh, Baroque repertory, but certainly I was extremely gratified by the response to the Orfei at the end of last season, and I thought we have to be able to find a way of institutionalizing some approach to this cornerstone of the repertory. I always get a little bit worried when I have these conversations that people think that opera is, you need too much knowledge, it's, it's too heavy, but I will say that I think that it is difficult to understand Philip Glass if you don't understand Monteverdi. Or, conversely, your experience of Glass is enhanced immeasurably by your understanding of Monteverdi and the, and the through line there. And so I love this idea of trying to create uh, threads throughout seasons. And so this, uh, we had this incredible um, opportunity. Christophe Rousset is a musician I have endless respect for, Um and, of course, it's an anniversary of, of Couperon. And so they, they had this little uh, tour that they were putting together. And so it, it seemed like too wonderful an opportunity to pass up. And I, I would say that I'm um, confident that there will be more of that um, in the future rather than less. So that e- even if we cannot do, for various reasons, a, a full-length um, performance of a, 
of a piece of baroque repertory on the stage, it, it'll be part of the of that of that mix. Mm-hmm. Again, one of one of the pleasures of the of the art form, I think, is that the incredible tributaries over its four hundred year history, and so the the fact that we can have world premieres in a season in which we're also doing seventeenth uh, century music, I find thrilling. Mm-hmm. Do you think the climate is such that? Um, you know the the hyper specialization of baroque music specifically early music i should say to be slightly more inclusive i guess of pre baroque is uh not, i don't want to say you know beneficial or harm, harmful but something else that sort of otherizes it from everything else that say an opera company or a symphony orchestra might do so you know across the street they do less bach perhaps than they would otherwise here Maybe do you think you do less Baroque opera than you would otherwise simply because of the the early music specialist movement that has gained ground since the 70s? I would actually argue that all of that has called new attention to those pieces. You think about the incredible renaissance of Baroque repertory at the previous iteration of New York City Opera and all of those pieces that had kind of fallen out of the repertory that suddenly people found to be both musically and theatrically vibrant in a way that made them credible in the, in the middle of the, of the last decade. I think it's been a, been a kind of huge advantage. We have approached this in many different ways over the years. Our orchestra played the, the Dido and Aeneas, but on period instruments. Um, when we did Tamerlano with Placido Domingo, our orchestra played it, but on contemporary instruments, modern instruments, I should say. In previous years, when we were doing our Monteverdi cycle, we were importing a pre-existing, uh, I shouldn't say that. that, that was true of the Ulysses, which was before I was here, but that was an existing Baroque orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Harry Bickett conducted the Popea following that, he handpicked his own kind of orchestra um, using some specialists. So I think there's lots of different and very exciting and totally legitimate ways of, of, of configuring this. I just know that... Um, you know, in a season in which we're doing six or seven main stage operas and then the things that we're doing off-grand, it, it is one of the corners of the repertory which is easy for us to let go because it, it isn't a particular um, interest and passion of Placido or James or Grant or Matthew O'Coin or Susan Graham or any other member of the artistic leadership, which is not to say that they're not interested in it, but, it, it you know, when, when we're trying to uh, balance a season... It has been neglected, and I, I think that that's something that um, we hope to address in the time because I, mm. I think that these pieces are as vibrant and vital as, as anything else that we're doing, and so I'm excited um, for us to be able to explore this more fully. And again, I, w- I would say that the incredible response we had to the Gluck lit a fire under me that this was something that we needed to really to address because it was very gratifying to see how, how well audiences responded to that repertory. Mm-hmm. That's hardly a neglected corner of the repertory, but still. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned Philip Glass uh, a moment ago, and uh, I've been waiting for Satyagraha uh, basically ever since Einstein came to town. And uh, I was telling Beth Morrison um, on this very podcast um, that I was I was at that Einstein, and it was the one that Kim Kardashian and Kanye West also attended, and I... Very I, controversially, yes. I, I noticed that they stayed for longer than I thought they would, and I thought that was great. But I remember going into it thinking, you know, I haven't listened to a ton of Philip Glass opera. I know bits and pieces of Einstein, 
and they tell me it's five hours with no intermission, but they also tell me it's come and go as you please. So I said, well, why don't we just, you know, let's see, you know, how long we last, basically. <laughs> and um, we ended up, uh, my wife and I ended up so absolutely enchanted with it that after about two and a half hours, we sort of looked at each other ruefully because we both had to use the facilities. <laughs> so we quick run out. That's impressive marital nonverbal communication. Right, right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the eyes direct towards the restroom and, yeah. you know, and then we come back as soon as we possibly can and, and we're in for the rest of the rest of the bit. But, um, you know, absolutely Absolutely exciting, wonderful experience, and the same for Akhenaten. And so here we are now with the third in this sort of um, trilogy of uh, not telling the stories, but trilogy inspired by great individuals who changed the world. Yeah, so the original impetus behind this idea, as, as I've mentioned endlessly, and I apologize, we are very invested in this idea of multi-year programmatic threads. So... The original bold idea was to assert that Philip Glass is arguably, or because uh, people will argue with me, and they do, he's an essential piece of the history of operatic composition. So whether you choose to put him in that pantheon of Monteverdi, Mozart, Wagner, Verdi, Puccini. Wait, people will argue that he's not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yes. Not that in a way as a totally different conversation but sure. yes i think i th- i think that i i don't want to mount all the arguments that people no. make against philip glass and his music but we're a very young opera company we're only in our 32nd year but this is an individual who i considered to be foundational to the art form who we had not yet had the opportunity to explore once you start going down that path i mean he's he's been an extremely prolific composer and you know the contemporary work sounds very different than Akhenaten and Satyagraha and Einstein on the Beach, but there was something very moving for me about the idea that we could do the the first three pieces. Um, it's taken us six years to do that, uh, but this was constructed as a six-year, five-title exploration of Philip because we've been able to do two of the two of the works um, in the off-grand series as well. And I think that I don't want to place a value judgment on which piece is better or which piece is worse, but I think that to your point about you looking forward to Satyagraha, it is a deeply profound experience of, of music theater and very different than than the other two. I find it institutionally and personally gratifying that this journey with Philip will, will end with what I consider to be the most transcendently and emotionally moving of of those five pieces um, that we've been able to do. And in a way, and some people will have seen the production because it, it, it was at the Metropolitan Opera and also aired in HD, one of the most theatrically bold things that will ever have been seen on, on the LA Opera stage. And again, it's not that I think that I an mean, opera company can be political or it can be apolitical, Certainly that we are in a moment of um, kind of incredible tribalism. And so a number of hours in the theater in which we're reflecting on the legacy of Mahatma Gandhi, I think of theater and opera as being one of the places in which people of very disparate backgrounds can come together in a kind of a communion. And so there's something particularly beautiful for me about that. So it's a 
it's very it's very gratifying. I'm very I'm looking forward to it. I also just think it's a it's a wonderful piece of music and a and a, a particularly inspired production by Feather McDermott, who had directed The Dark Knight for us, and a longtime collaborator, um, uh, Julian Crouch. It's um, it's a very arresting evening. Mm-hmm. And it's not five hours, and there is an intermission. There so. are two intermissions, in two, fact. In fact, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, it is funny that you say, you know, people people were very daunted by that. It's a kind of yeah. a, like, a, a kind of a, I survived, I, I climbed this mountain. I think that, like, all great works of art, and, you know, having come from Bayreuth, I'm very much in this mindset, that if you if you are truly in communion with that piece of art, quotidian concerns start to fade. It's part of the reason I think we go to the theater, that... All of that kind of fades away in the passage of time. This is the thing that opera does better than any other art form, which is it suspends time. And so ideally you're not so conscience, conscious of the, of the passage of time. But yes, as you point out, practically there are, there are two, two snack breaks in the middle of Satyagraha. I <laughs> uh, was speaking uh, recently, and this will be a future podcast uh, on this series, uh, with mezzo-soprano Susan Graham who, of course, runs the uh, Young Artist Program, and that's a podcast that you can already listen to. Um, but she is making a role debut uh, this season with Los Angeles Opera, which must have you very excited. It does. I mean, I, I think that she maybe said in the conversation, which I haven't heard yet, that uh, it took some convincing to get her to do this. And again, forgive me for, for repeating myself, but I, this this idea of following an artist over multiple years as their ideas about their own artistry change, I find that super gratifying. I think it's one of the reasons why people love opera and, and they get so attached to, to singers is, is to see the evolution of an artist over time. You you know, the audience will have noticed that, you know, someone like Nino Matraidza comes back eight years in a row. You watch the evolution of this individual's artistry. There's something um, really gratifying about that. So, you know, this isn't repertory that I think that that she had ever really considered, and this is coming off the heels of what I think was a very surprising experience for her in taking on the Blitzstein uh, Regina, asking things of her that hadn't been asked of her before, and finding that really personally gratifying. That was this summer in St. Louis. Yes, and and having seen that performance, I've I've watched Susan Graham over the last you know uh, number of decades, and to watch the the evolution of that expressiveness is is really wonderful. So this, in fact, is is also a revival of a production that premiered in that same season as Don Carlos, now now 12 years ago. You know, Hansel and Gretel has that fantastic tension built into it, which is that it's incredibly sophisticated music-making, you know, stereotypically described as Wagnerian in scale, but directed towards a story that is as commonly known as as any in the american imagination and so that i've always really loved that that tension about the piece and i'm it's fantastic to be able to re-explore that um with a very different cast with the passage of time um with the original director and designer doug fitch coming coming back after having so much experience um, in staging so much repertory both in opera houses but also um, extremely successfully in in concert halls around the country. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to this. And of course, to be able to do this under James Conlon's baton, a kind of noted Wagnerian, um, and to know how far the company has come since then, we have benefited 
in a legion of, of, of ways from our experience of going through the ring and that the kind of sound world that James has been able to create with his sustained relationship with the orchestra. I think it's going to be a really uh, wonderful uh, endeavor. Mm-hmm. I uh, jumped out of order just very slightly by uh, skipping to the holiday season and missing Halloween in the process. But uh, Joby Talbot's, uh, is it Vampire? Vampire, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, so jo- Joby Talbot is a, a composer who I was uh, first exposed to in a, a ballet that he wrote uh, for the Royal Ballet in London of Alice in Wonderland. I love dance. I go to dance as much as I can. But if given the chance between going to the ballet and the opera, I tend to go to the opera. I happen to have a free night in London and am a fan of the company, but also of the, of the choreographer. And so I, I went to this um, not knowing Joby's work at all. And it, it was a, an evening of total epiphany for me because he found an incredible way of infusing extraordinary dramaturgy and storytelling inside of the orchestra and that one of the things that I have worried about about in, in contemporary opera certainly is an over-reliance on text and an under-reliance on the idea of the orchestra as being the principal storyteller. And then he did, he did it ag- again with the full-length ballet of The Winner's Tale and a notoriously difficult story to tell. And in between, he wrote this really, really wonderful 70-minute-long opera about the Everest disaster that was premiered by the Dallas Opera. He's also a film composer. We met, we started a conversation, and he's just someone that I had hoped to bring into the LA Opera family eventually. And we found a common purpose in this fourth of our endeavors at Halloween at the Theater at the Ace Hotel. I suggested a number of different projects to Joby. He actually... Uh, came up with with this uh, uh, German expressionist uh, horror film, Vampire, which he's written for a chamber ensemble of the Eliop Orchestra and a single mezzo-soprano voice. That endeavor in every way has been uh, successful beyond our, our wildest dreams. 50% of the audiences that are coming to that endeavor have never had an experience of not only Eli Opera, but opera at all. You're speaking of the Ace Hotel yes. partnership, yeah. Yeah, indeed. And I'm not so worried about whether those people will then um, start coming to Norma. What I'm interested in, you know, because I, th- I, think, I think that some of them will, some of them won't. It feels to me a bit of a fool's errand to overemphasize that. The idea is to expand the audience and expand that audience's idea about what an opera company is, who it's for, what stories it's capable of telling, and to reduce what I think to be a kind of reflexive prejudice against the art form. And has been wildly successful in that regard, but also has been a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to continue to engage with a group of artists that we wouldn't otherwise be able to engage with. I mean, that's true of, of all of the off-grand endeavors. Mm-hmm. In fact, if we're working in chronology, there's also there's two other uh, projects that we will have um, premiered by the time we get to Hansel and Gretel. Uh, the first of which is uh, David Little's Soldier Songs, uh, which we are doing um, at the Ford Theater, the second of our endeavors uh, with Beth Morrison um, at, the, at the Ford Theater. And in fact, the second of our endeavors uh, with David Little, who launched our uh, endeavor. He didn't launch off grand. But he and Dog Days were the first of the projects that we had done with Beth Morrison at, at Red Cat. And this looks like a really interesting uh, piece. I, I'm trying to, I think we're going to talk 
David T. Little and I are going to talk a little bit later this week, so that oh, is also wonderful. going to be a, a future podcast. Yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful composer. And again, Soldier's experience of PTSD is not a subject matter that people would necessarily associate with a traditional classical art form. So that is really wonderful. It also ties into, thematically for me, projects that we have been doing in education and community engagement. We work a lot um, with veterans groups. And in fact, we do a lot of uh, conversations after main stage repertory. We, we have these kind of private conversations uh, that, that really are veterans groups dealing with the issues of PTSD through the lens of what they've seen on stage. So we had one last year with Kendi and the year before with Macbeth. That idea of repertory in real life being in, in conversation for me is really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other piece is the world premiere of Ellen Reed's Prism, which will be at Red Cat and will later be seen. Um, you probably talked to Beth about this at her prototype festival. Um, that's very exciting. Ellen, of course, was commissioned to write music for the, for the industry, commissioned by the L.A. Master Chorale, commissioned by the L.A. Chamber Orchestra, I'm so incredibly proud of the uh, of that incredible infrastructure of of classical music and the in Los Angeles and the ways in which it's a cooperative endeavor. I've been calling her the unofficial composer in residence for Los Angeles. Well, yeah, <laughs> indeed. And you know, to some degree, this was by default. So, to some degree, it was by design. But the idea that all of these institutions could support the work of this emerging artist is super gratifying. And also, we're fighting a couple of hundred years of, of history of no opportunities for female composers. And so this project with Beth has been an incredible way for us to be able to, to um, I don't want to use the pun, but to, to give voice to these composers and to try to, um, even in a small way, to try to provide a kind of radical piece of intervention in terms of, of what is repertory. So that is fantastic. In a corner of the classical music world where famously when Kaya Sariaho was commissioned at the Met, everyone said 113 years between not even just a living composer but any female composer. composer. So, you know, how do you look at that when you look at what you program as well? Well, I would just re- repeat that, you know, we, we have found a means to try to, if not reverse the trend, because it's hundreds of years we're trying to turn back, but that but that actually make sure that these compositional voices are heard. This has primarily been done through Beth Morrison and through Ofgran, uh, but certainly not. That isn't our plan to, to make it exclusive. I think the the danger is that there is a sense of, even as we are doing it, that there is some sense of ghettoization or of tokenism, and I definitely want to avoid that. We're, we're, we're trying to support those artists I mean, part of the of the uh, purpose of Off Grand has been to support the development of artists, and certainly I'm proud of the way in which we're tr- trying to help develop those artists so that they can be, frankly, the next Philip Glass. Those those voices are out there. You know, the second endeavor that we did with um, Off Grand was with Missy Mazzoli, and you know that has been um, incredibly gratifying to witness how uh, quickly her a particularly potent um, compositional voice has been embraced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially in opera. Yeah, yeah, indeed. It, it's something that we need to correct and and fast, and so um, it's one of the means by which we're doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess now, if we're in chronological order, that brings us to uh, late February, 
and uh, David Lang's The Loser. David Lang's Loser, the second of our uh, endeavors with David Lang. You'll see a recurring theme here. Once we fall in love with an artist, we want them around a lot. He's a good one to have around. He's a fantastic one to have around, not only as a composer, but as a human being. This is a funny project because it, it combines very much the 2018 uh, Los Angeles Opera with the 1986 LA Opera. Uh, this is a dramatic monologue written specifically for Rodney Guilfrey. Rodney Guilfrey appeared in the first endeavor of the LA Opera as the Herald in Otello and went on to have this incredible <laughs> decades-long career. We had Rod back for the first time in about 10 years uh, in Matthew O'Coin's Crossing um, last season. And so to have him back again so quickly is, for me, wonderful. He's, a, he's as, as much a part of the of the LA Opera as Placido and James. He's just in, integral to our success. David wrote this piece for BAM. It has an unusual theatrical experience in that the entire audience will be sitting in the balcony of the theater at the Ace Hotel, no one sitting in the, in the orchestra, uh, because Rod is suspended in the void between the edge of the audience and the proscenium. Uh, the orchestra, uh, present but unseen, it's a different way for us to use this theater, which we have been in um, so successfully for four, four Halloweens, but have never done a kind of proper operatic production there. So everything about it is pretty exciting for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Soldiering on with Mozart, uh, Clemenza de Tito, that's uh, in March. And a company premiere, amazingly. For the work. It's a company premiere wow. for, for the work. This goes back to a conversation that we had with James about some of these works, you know, when we had done Abduction now uh, two seasons ago, um, that was the first time that that incredible masterpiece had been heard here. Again, the excuse that I have is the company is is relatively young, but it is an unadulterated masterpiece. It is one of his final works. Of course, he was writing it at the same time he was writing uh, The Magic Flute. But that it it is not commonly heard um, in the United States, and I think it, it may it may be misunderstood. And so I'm I'm excited ab- about it. I'm excited about our cast. What um, about it is misunderstood? Do you think? I think because when when you have pieces like the Marriage of Figaro, if it is arguable that it is one of the greatest operas ever written, it is inarguable that the second act of the Marriage of Figaro is the greatest act of opera in the repertory in my mind. And you have the Magic Flute. The, these these pieces occupy such a large space in the public imagination uh, by dint of both genius and familiarity that the these other pieces like Idomeneo and Clemenza and, and even Abduction have been understood to be therefore lesser pieces in, in that way that we have of, of ranking things. It is notoriously hard to cast that, that title role. You really kind of need a, a quasi-Heldon tenor for that. Uh, the sound world is is different than what people associate with with Mozart. I think it, I, I think it just hasn't achieved a level of of popularity, and then that becomes a kind of self fulfilling prophecy. Which is, when you when you don't hear it a lot, people think that it is somehow a, a lesser work. So our claim is that it is it is foundational, and so we're doing a, a new production um, directed by Thaddeus Strasberger, who directed uh, last year's uh, Nabucco for us and Dewey Foscari. Uh, another piece of neglected repertory for us um, some years ago. We're going to make a, a, a claim for this piece as being an essential piece of the repertory. 
I will say that one of one of the reasons why we are doing a new production is because there are so few productions in the world. And what's interesting is that as, as soon as we assembled the creative team and as soon as they came up with their extraordinarily beautiful interpretation of this work, uh, we've had f- three or four opera companies uh, come forward to, to express interest in partnering with us on this, which is really, really exciting for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then comes, is this role number 151 for... Indeed. Placido Domingo, I just can't believe I'm saying that number. Yeah, incredible. Again, I think, you know, part of my responsibility as president and CEO is to try to create opportunities for um, our leaders to kind of follow their, their muses. And so I think it's been really wonderful for the LA, the L.A. community to have an experience of this repertory that means so much to Placido but that would otherwise go unheard. We had done a production, not this one, of Elgato Montez in 1994. And this is music by Manuel Panea. Indeed. And this, you know, at that point, the company is only eight years old. Um, this is a repertory that, you know, no one else in the country, I wouldn't say the world, because there's, of course, there's Osuela Theater in Madrid, but very unknown repertory. And Placido arranged for this to be filmed and broadcast on, on great performances at the time. And I th- it was a real revelation, I, th- I think, for audiences that the company was doing repertory that no one else was doing. And his personal connection to this, re- this repertory and his, his passion for it um, was, was really exciting. So it's fantastic for us, although those many years later, to, to revisit this. And again, with him flipping from the tenor role to the title role in this case of of the wildcat and to do so surrounded by all of these kind of friends that people have come to know like Ana Maria Martinez and Arturo Chacon Cruz you know it is technically not a sarsuela it is technically Spanish opera I think that's a distinction without a difference (laughs) Um, but has been I think really interesting for people to to explore that repertory um, with him Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, we raise a glass and toast the season's end. See what I did there with Verdi's La Traviata. Indeed, uh, another kind of uh, cornerstone of the repertory. You know, we, we think of these things as the, the revisiting of this kind of standard repertory with, with a different set of artists is, is particularly illuminating. Th- this is the way that opera has worked for hundreds of years, which is that is to, is to go back to the cornerstone, to go back to the touchstones with a different set of artists is, is an essential uh, way of, of trying to understand um, the repertory. And again, you know, this, this is the piece that marked James Conlon's debut. And so how thrilling 13 years, amazing, talk about passage of time, mm-hmm. how thrilling 13 years later to be able to, to revisit this. It's a f- fantastic way to, uh, to cap the season. Excellent. And then as, just as we wrap up, and I don't want to close with a too big of a question, too large of a topic, but just curious, uh, in your mind, what are the most effective strategies? What has worked here? What maybe hasn't worked here? Ways to make this art form as accessible as possible to as many people as possible? Yeah. That is a big question, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's a big question, but I would say that it's the central question that informs day-to-day life around here. The company was founded on the principle that we were an international level opera company pushing an international level of, of the art form. 
but also foundational to its founding was this idea of of community engagement. I think that that often that idea it was, it's kind of an idea of a, of a department that exists in order to kind of check a box. But for us, it's always been a foundational principle about access and inclusion. And I would say that while it was foundational, the passion behind that has only grown over time. So we now reach more people through education and community outreach than we do in main stage endeavors. And all of that effort is really in service of the idea that access to the arts, high, low, middle, is a fundamental human right. And that even if you don't understand the history of Rome or who the emperor Tito was, or you don't speak Italian or you don't know anything about Mozart, that this art form has something fundamental to bring to your life and that the sustained contact with it over time, it can be merely entertaining, but ideally it can point towards a kind of higher purpose. So what has worked? A real investment in real community engagement. And our philosophy very much is that if you invite us into your home, you get invited into ours. And so we have this incredible program called Community Seating in which 200 seats in the orchestra level of the auditorium are granted either for free or or heavily subsidized at $9 for individuals to have an experience of what, what it is like to experience Don Carlo in an opera house. That's one thing that worked. Off Grand has been an incredible way of expanding the audience. And again, I I think the success of that has not only been um, the individual success of of any of those artistic endeavors, but has really been incredibly effective, as I mentioned before, about starting to counter people's preconceived notions about what opera is. We often joke that opera has a branding problem, and you think about the ways in which it's depicted in popular culture. You know, it's an affectation of the idle rich. It's a kind of a realm of snobbery. Um, and that we, we try to counter that in, in every way possible. When I think about what, what hasn't worked, I mean, we, we have been remarkably successful knocking on wood <laughs> um, at holding on to our core audience of expanding that audience. Our Our audience is economically, racially, and age-diverse in a way that is we're doing better in, the, in those regards than, than some of our brethren companies. You know, but that's a, that's a battle you have to fight every day in order for people to understand that it isn't just an affectation, that there, that there is something vital about the, about the art form. Mm-hmm. Well, here's to a successful 2018-19 season. And, uh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> fingers, fingers, fingers always crossed. <laughs> it's opera after all. It is. You know, it is a... I think one of the miraculous things about the art form is... The impediments to its success are legion. It is too complex to ever be successful. If you look at at all of the impediments to its success on paper, financial, people, talent, audience, traffic, all of it, when all of those gears click into place and successfully, as we try to make sure that they do, that is nothing short of a, a miracle of, of human endeavor. That That is super gratifying. What a wonderful way to spend your, your life's work. I mean, it's I, I feel like the luckiest person in the world to have the job I have because it's all in service of making sure that all those, all those gears click together. So, yes, fingers crossed, but also 
um, an incredible amount of passion and skill that's brought to bear to make sure that, that it is successful and a little bit of luck. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Christopher Kelsch is the president and CEO of L.A. Opera. Details about each of the productions of the 2018-19 season are available at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.